Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Jake Bible. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Suzanne Church. And you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft. And that's the key word here, craft. Because we writers, we toil and we struggle and we explore (laughs) our craft in a never-ending quest to improve, improve, improve. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, is it sometimes it does feel like toil and trial, but oh God, the end result is so much fun. So much fun. Dear friends, the name Suzanne Church may not be a familiar one here on the round table, but oh dear friends, she has earned her chops to sit in that virtual co-host chair. Her stories have appeared in Year's Best YA Speculative Fiction, Tesseract's Imaginarium 4, the best Canadian speculative fiction writing, The Singularity Review, and Suzanne, I think you've got a a new story collection, uh, Elements, that just came out? Yeah, it came out in uh, April of 2014. Okay, so not just came out. (laughs) Nope, that's okay. It was nominated for an Aurora this year. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That is awesome. Ma'am, I am so grateful to have you sitting beside me. This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to a talking story with you and uh, just generally getting into the writerly vibe, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) You betcha. Well, and we have a guest host waiting in the wings, and uh, I think it's my job to introduce this chap. May I uh, introduce our guest host to you, Suzanne? Oh, please tell me everything you can. (laughs) Careful what you wish for. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll tell you, Suzanne, you are no doubt familiar with this common phrase uh, uh, to be found bantered about in the world about fiction writers that basically affirms that they're all liars. Uh, Now, we all smile and nod because, yes, we understand fiction is made up, so technically lying is their craft and business, yada, yada. And that's all well and good, Until you run into somebody like our guest host who takes his lying seriously. Now, my first research stop for all of my guest hosts is the About page of their website. Now, if you visit his, you will see that, aside from a few tattered shreds of truth, it is comprised solely of fabrications, exaggerations, and bald-faced lies. Uh, The researcher in me cringed to discover this, but the storyteller in me perked up because I knew this was going to be fun. Our guest host lives with his family nestled in the Blue Ridge Mountains in a town called Asherville, North Carolina. But he was born way on the other side of the country in Bellevue, Washington. His family didn't linger there long, however, moving to Eugene, Oregon three years later. Speculations that they were asked to leave the state because our guest host had manifested demonic powers are completely unfounded. Just don't Don't listen to those stories, friends. It's not true. His enthusiasm for writing was kindled in elementary school. Now, apparently the curriculum of fourth and fifth graders in Eugene, Oregon, included a monthly exercise of writing, illustrating, and binding their own books. 
which is very cool. I mean, the discipline of the writer had been instilled in him at a very young age. That's elementary school. Elementary school. Exactly, right? And so it's like they were priming these kids. I wonder how many people in that class actually went on to be writers. That would be an intriguing bit of research. That would be a good good number to learn. I think so. I think so. Now, interestingly, around the same time, he became interested in theater, which, as we have learned around here on the roundtable, is one of the primary gateway drugs into a writer's life. I think we're up to about a 78 percentile of people on this show who have a theater background. He would trod the boards in school and community productions well into his high school years, and to this day harbors a secret desire to be financially secure enough to write stage plays full-time, which is an even more difficult field to succeed in than fiction writer. Uh, Another thing to bear in mind about our guest host is that his birthday is just a few days before Halloween. Now, I have a few friends with birthdays at the far end of October, and without exception, their psyche is somehow realigned by proximity to that holiday. And the same is true for our guest host. Dude loves Halloween, which doubtless fueled his deep fascination with Edgar Allan Poe. Our guest host still remembers fondly that Saturday morning in 1980 when he watched Poe's The Gold Bug, adapted for television starring Anthony Michael Hall and Jeffrey Holder. Now, he also had a friend who had an album of a narration of The Telltale Heart that utterly captivated him. So it should come as no surprise when, much later in life, he would gravitate to horror in his first forays as a professional writer. He was, by all accounts, a bright lad, taking AP classes in high school, including an AP European history class his senior year. Uh, He loved that one so much it sparked another delight in his heart, a love of history. And in the years to come, he would devour textbooks and treatises on the history of England and France and Spain, and eventually he'd work that particular passion into his writing, too. But... After high school, shit got real. He had to work full-time to support his mother and sister, which reveals yet another facet to the dark jewel of his psyche. There is nothing more important than family. To this day, when asked what's most important in his life, his answer will be family and writing, without fail and in that order. So, writing had to take a back seat while he took care of business. But... Those true passions never fade away. They just smolder until a breeze of opportunity can fan them back into flame. Fast forward to late in the first decade of the new millennia, our guest host was married with lovely children and working as the director of customer service for a small online retailer. This meant he had to stay at his desk, regardless of whether there were any calls or emails. There was plenty of downtime for him, seated at a keyboard, so he began to fill those hours with words. He started selling short stories to online e-zines, including the tale Seven Deadly Drabbles for Norm Sherman's Drabblecast, appearing on episode 119 of that fabulous podcast in June 2009. In August 2009, he commenced the podcasting of his first novel, Dead Mech. But, of course, he couldn't just draft something as mundane as a novel for his flagship endeavor. It was the world's first drabble novel, told in discrete 100-word segments. 
the podcast was a hit and gathered a strong fan base and caught the attention of a publisher named Library of the Living Dead. And our guest host was delighted to sign with them. Now, this was right before the ebook phenomenon began to shake the pillars of heaven. And not all publishers were prepared to jump on that train. And the Library of the Living Dead was one of those guys that wasn't quite ready. But our guest host was keen to get his work into this new format. So after some consideration, the publisher graciously agreed to return the rights so he could do just that. Dead Mech became the Apex trilogy, with The Americans and Metal and Ash being added to the canon. It also got picked up by Severed Press, who also picked up his long-running Zeburbia series, considered by some to be the definitive zombie literary fair, and is now, by the way, up to six books. More novels followed, exploring different narratives and different audiences, including a YA tale called Little Dead Man. Now, logic dictated that he get an agent, and he did. But his work was so diverse, the agent had a hard time selling it, so they parted ways. Then, leveraging his networking skills, he called upon a few author chums from the Library of the Living Dead to write him a recommendation for a fast-rising publisher named Permuted Press, who had been swinging deals with Borders and Simon and & Schuster and got the whole ebook thing. Permuted was impressed by our guest host's canon of work through Severed Press and signed him as well. Now, more stories came, including middle-grade tales like the Scarescape series, as well as the Kaiju Winter series and Dead Team Alpha. I mean, seriously, gang, it would take up the whole intro just listing all the novels he's written in just the last five years. Now, in 2012, he started writing screenplays, joining Team Longshot in the 48-hour film project. Team Longshot has competed every year since and won the audience favorite award every single time. Then, just this year, he was nominated for the prestigious Bram Stoker Award for superior achievement in a young adult novel for his novel Intentional Haunting, published by Permuted Press. He didn't win, but to be sitting in the audience with all the other nominees, legends of the horror genre, it was all he could do to just remember to breathe. Now, also this year, he finally scratched that historical itch he's been harboring since high school, launching The Reign of Four, a series he describes as medieval science fiction, drawing the best of both genres into a fast-paced and epic tale. Dear friends, he's terrified of big cats, invites fans to send him baseball caps, preferably from local breweries, and if kidnapped and offered the chance to bring three books with him, he'd grab three empty composition books so he could keep writing. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Master Jake Bible. Jake, holy crap, given the, the sheer magnitude of epic literary awesomeness that you have cranked out in just five short years, I'm honestly stunned you were able to find a few hours to share with the roundtable, and that delights me to no end. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's definitely a privilege. Oh, you're a gentleman, <laughs> sir. Thank you. Now, look, before we get into the 20 minutes with, there's something I've been dying to ask ever since I started listening to the Dead Robot Society back in the day. And oh, this, yeah. this is going to be kind of an insider thing, and, and but 
anybody who's listened to the Dead Robot Society, and specifically Paul Cooley in particular, knows that you are, at least on paper, his nemesis. <laughs> and you have made no bones about that similar feeling. So I'm just, I've been dying to know, because obviously I came in late to the story. Many of us did. How did that all start, Jake? <laughs> that started, actually, we can blame Scott Sigler. Of um, course we can. Yes, I mean, it's easy to do, but but it's actually true this time. Um, he, he had his anthology series, or I guess, uh, you know, it wasn't anthology so much for him, but then he invited other uh, authors to play in his universe of the crypt. And um, I was invited to write a short story for that. Paul Cooley was invited to write a short story for that at the same time. And when it was announced that, you know, all the different authors that were going to be writing in that crypt series... Uh, we were encouraged, you know, to go on social media and banter back and forth. And Cooley and I just instantly uh, connected in just ripping each other apart. <laughs> the, just the most horrid, awful, sarcastic, snarky things you could say. We just kept building it and building it. And it was just way too much fun to be, you know, nemesi. Nemesi, <laughs> yes. I, nemesi? I think that's the term, sure. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> We just had way too much fun going going after each other, um, and that was when know. exactly? How many years has this has this banter been going on? Oh, that's well. Let's see. What, what, when did you say to Dead Mech was as a uh, podcast? I think was that, that was two thousand nine. Yeah, nine. Yeah, so two thousand and nine because Dead Mech was still a podcast. Oh, God. Someday, someday the two of you are going to be in the same room and it's going to be like antimatter <laughs> particles coming together. I know, yeah. Pe- people don't believe it, they, you know, because we've never been in the same room before. So I think some people <laughs> think I, I'm a figment of his imagination and vice versa. And vice versa. <laughs> oh, God, maybe you both are. Maybe you're both figments of our imagination. Holy crap. This well, then the- you people are sick. You're sick, sick <laughs> you, know, you know, I actually had to Google it, the plural of nemesis, and it's nemeses, not nemesis. Oh, okay. Okay. There you go. Thank so we've you. all learned a new word today. There we go. <laughs> See, and that's nothing. The roundtable is nothing if not educational. Thank you, Suzanne. Right, I appreciate exactly. that. You know, I thought just in case our listeners were curious, they don't want to call you on it later. Yes, nemesis. There we Excellent. go, nemesis. Awesome. Well, all right. Enough, enough banding about and 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 banter. Let's get down to this. I'm gonna, I want to get down to our 20 minutes with Jake Bible. I'm gonna set the clock here. And as we all know, we'll ignore it. And that pisses the clock off no end. Uh, Jake, uh, you have said on several occasions that you write pulp fiction. Now, that term and that genre has gotten a hell of a lot of attention in recent years. A massive renaissance, a resurgence. And when I think of pulp fiction, I think of... You know, I think of Humphrey Bogart. I think of The Phantom or Doc Savage or even Conan. You know, I think about that those types of stories. And so I'm curious, seeing as how you identify your writing as Pulp Fiction, tell me what you consider Pulp Fiction to be. What, what, are, the, what are the qualities that define a work of contemporary Pulp Fiction? You know, it's still what kind of defines it way back in the day and now is down and fast and dirty, you know, fiction writing that's, you know, definitely genre. Uh, so usually sci-fi, horror, fantasy, something like that, a mix mashup of those. Uh, crime will go in there, noir, like you said, Humphrey Bogart, uh, stuff like that, that, you know, really is, is designed solely to entertain and make the writer some money. 
<laughs> Let's so shameless is what you're saying. It's shameless. Yes. It's completely shameless. <laughs> if there's a contract in it, it needs to be written. That's basically Where do I sign? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, but that that can't be all there is to it. I mean, you you have written some some beautiful stories, Jake. I mean, there there's there's subtle nuances in there. There's there's emotional arcs. It's it's not just this, you know, one of the things that I found typifies pulp fiction for me is that it's a light read in that it's not going to challenge me it's not going to lead me through complex uh, uh character arcs but your stories do well thank you <laughs> first <laughs> off um and that's i mean if 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 that happens and people are you know are you know resonating with with the characters and the story arcs that that is great um I would say it's definitely, you know, by design, but I write fast, so I don't always know if the design comes out the way it's supposed to, <laughs> and that's that's kind of the trick. Um, I write so fast that I don't have a chance to really savor what I've written. I, I tend to move on to the next project, so it's not until I get feedback like that or from reviewers or readers that I even that I know if I've hit the mark or not. Okay. Um, and I think that's that's part of it. Um, I mean, there there are some great pulp writers, you know, through the years that have made you know made some amazing amazing works, and you know some sentences that are just you're like, wow, that is a mastercraft right there. But then there's you know huge bodies of their work also that you're like, well, yeah, that that was fluff. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that that paid the mortgage that month. I, I'm sure that did. So. And, and I'm sure that's true of several of your pieces as well. And, exactly. and the thing is, you're okay with that though. Yes. I, I am okay with that because I, I do this full time and so it is my job. And, you know, even if I were to spend a year on a novel, there's no guarantee I'm going to hit the mark there either. Um, so I would rather do it, you know, fast and dirty and get it out there and get on to the next project and just, you know, keep going with all the things that are in my head that need to come out. <laughs> so if you're, if you're writing that quickly, does that mean you're, you're writing to, you know, very detailed specific outlines then? Uh, no, not necessarily. Sometimes I will outline, um, if, if I need, you know, that guide, if, if it's not coming easily, um, or sometimes, uh, like, I mean, my last, my most recent work that I just did, Blood Cruise, I didn't write a single bit of outline. I had a, a brief pitch description I had given to my uh, publisher, and that's what I went off, and it just zoomed out of my head. It, I mean, <laughs> seriously, it was nuts. It, in not counting weekends, it took me 16 days to write that novel. Wow. And it just, it, it, I just like, I channeled that. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> how, <laughs> how intense so was... either, either you drink a lot of coffee or you're just a really, really fast typist. There's probably a little of both in there. <laughs> well, you had observed that, that early on in your writing career, Jake, that it actually hurt to write. Like after a couple hours yeah. of trying to work through a story, you would get tension headaches. Yeah, no, early on before I really, you know, dove into it, it would. It would be a couple hours, and and I would feel that tension in my head, in the back of my head, start to grow, and just and then pretty soon the creativity was just overwhelmed with just that pressure, and I was like, oh, I'll never be a writer. I don't have the fortitude, and it's just like any other muscle, you know. Practice. <laughs> you just keep <laughs> practice and working it, and it gets stronger and it gets stronger. And now, I mean, I can. I, 
I'll sit down nine to five, you know, I'm not necessarily writing for eight straight hours. Cause I don't think that's quite possible, but I, you know, I mean, there's a good four hours of just me typing, 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 and then a few hours of me staring off into space. Um, well, you know, cause <laughs> you, you got to do that. That's obligatory. Yeah yeah. 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 But I still, at the same time, I still know when I start getting that tension, when I start feeling that pressure, I'm like, okay, wrap it up where I can get back to it tomorrow because I'm about to be done. I just, I, I know my limits and I think that's part of it also. I'm pacing myself. I'm not burning out. I know where my limits are. Very cool. And now yeah, you that's have... important. You don't want to get burned out because then all your projects just collapse into a heap of, yeah. you know, <laughs> mess. Yes, exactly. And at yeah. the pace you set, you set for yourself, Jake, one, one misstep and it could cause a catastrophe <laughs> of, of, of deadlines missed and so on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've, I've got to be very careful and, you know, budget my time and my energy um, okay. when I'm working. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> well, I'm going to turn the mic over to my co-host. Suzanne, did you have a, a question for Jake? Well, yeah. I mean, as we've been talking, I've been thinking if you're writing that quickly, have you ever backed yourself into a plot corner? Yes, I have. <laughs> and and um, how did, how did you get out of it? Was it painful or was it, you know, just delete a few thousand words and go back? There's been a little, little, little of both. Um, and there's actually been some great, you know, epiphanies too. Um, so I, I have deleted, you know, like half a chapter before and been like, nope, I'm not getting out of there. <laughs> That's, half I a chapter? Write. That's all oh, you yeah. had not to delete? Not going to happen. You yeah. know, so I, I, I back up and then start over and, you know, other times I'm like, ooh, I know that's going to be a giant plot hole. I've gotten into, you know, this, this problem. I'll fix it in post, as they say, <laughs> and go back and just kind of rewrite a few things maybe in the beginning to make it work or just, you know, in when I'm editing, go back and fix it. And then other times I've gotten myself in a corner and not known what to do and literally slept on it. And the next morning, boom, it's like, that's not a corner. That's a wide open door onto a veranda <laughs> of possibilities. That's and an opportunity realize, right there. Yeah. Yeah. That it's like, this is even better than my original idea. Woo. <laughs> yeah, you know, as, as an author, that's one of my favorite things is when you've been struggling with something and then you just wake up one morning and you've just got all the answers yep. that you've been struggling with all along. Your subconscious just does all the work for you that one night when you really need it the most. Exactly. Exactly. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Jake Bible after this brief promotional break. The horrors created by mad science, tentacled monstrosities from beyond the veil, the elder gods themselves. None of these evils can keep occult consulting detective Esho St. Clair from the case. From the mind of Scott Roche comes the casebook of Esho St. Clair. Find out more at www.scottroche.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Jake Bible. As a writer of pulp, you know, it's interesting. A lot of writers, when pontificating advice, let's just say, <laughs> often suggest that television is the, you know, the, the polluter of the mind, the killer of the muse, the destroyer of, of the literary, you know, delights. And yet, I think pulp is the one area of speculative fiction in particular that has deep 
deep-seated roots in things like movies and television and media in general. Do you find that to you that kind of sort of release into into media, into script writing, into television, into movies, into all of that, does that fuel your 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 muse fire, so to speak, or do you find that it is closer to a soul destroyer? No, no, no. It's 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 fuel. Um, it is food for me. I definitely, if I feel myself coming up against a wall, um, I will stop and you know take a break. I mean, every every day when I eat lunch, I watch a TV show, um, and it's very. There's so much good TV right now. That's 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 <laughs> you know a while ago you could probably say yeah there was there was definitely a point <laughs> where yeah. it was a cesspool of creativity. <laughs> now. I will never be able to watch all the quality television that yeah. is available to me in my lifetime. <laughs> I agree completely. Truth. I can't believe how much every time I watch another yeah. brand new show that people are raving about, I say to myself, holy crap, this is like the best thing I've ever seen. I can't believe that this kind of television is being written. When yeah, will so I have I, the time I, yeah. to watch all of this stuff? Yeah, exactly. So I will, I will actually watch TV to recharge. Um, it will. I don't have to come up with the story. Someone already has. That's great. It's like eating out, you know. I don't have to cook the meal. Dang, that's delicious. That's but can, awesome. Exactly. But I can it's still like be pizza. satisfied. It's like the yeah. literary pizza. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, Jake. Then, in the in the context of a specific story, like let's say during uh, your writing of your Kaiju Winter series, would you, in the middle of writing that book or preparing to write one of those books, would you then go see? Pacific Rim or, or Godzilla or anything like that? Or, or are you concerned about contaminating your muse? I, I, I used to be when I was first starting out, um, worried about contaminating my muse. Now it, I'm not, I will actually watch whatever I'm hooked into. So if I've started some TV series, uh, it doesn't matter what I'm writing. I'm going to go back and keep watching that TV series. That's, that's grabbed my recreational mind. At this point in my career, I've I've been able to separate them easily. Like right now, I'm I'm writing a space marine, um, space opera, far future galactic scope thing, and I've been watching um, the Cinemax show Strike Back, which is just classic spec ops, you know, guns <laughs> and AK-47s and grenades and oh, macho guys and yeah. stuff. So you know. They have some similar themes, but no, they're really not in the same universe. Yeah, but that, you that's know. not a cross contamination. Yeah. But watching Battlestar no. Galactica could conceivably seed your seed your creative process with an idea that could derail your 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 story in the middle of the role. It, it could, um, and or like I said, early on, I was definitely afraid of that happening, and sometimes it did happen. Now I'm at the point where my mind will ignore you know, the extraneous stuff. And if anything happens, there'll be, you know, a little kernel of inspiration that I've been needing anyway. Um, It it could literally just be, you know, seeing someone's boots. Um, It could be a vehicle. It could be a dog running across the street, you know, on TV. And it goes, this is what I need for this next scene. (laughs) And it really has nothing to do with the television show I'm watching. It's just that little element kicked in something and I know what I have to fill in when right. I get back to writing. See, and that, that, that's badass. And, and you, you know, you've described, you know, the progression from the early days, you know, when you could only sit down for two hours and right. now you're cranking on a novel in 16 days. And that really is an astonishing testament to, as you observe, Jake, that this creative process is 
and I despise the muscle metaphor, but in this case, it's it's true. It's a process that you get better at, that your mental and creative perceptions and expressions do refine and get better the more stories you write. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, since you're such a fast writer, can I hit you with a few really fast questions? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, the super fast A or B. Are you ready? The lightning round. Here we go. <laughs> All right, here we go. So Doritos, nacho cheese or ranch? Oh, I'm old school nacho cheese. Uh, if you're at, at the uh, the art gallery, are you going Rembrandt or Picasso? Ooh, that's a good question because I do <laughs> like the Dutch, but I'm probably going to go Picasso over Rembrandt. Okay, yeah. stickers on a laptop or, you know, nothing but no, the Apple logo? No, no, I, no stickers on any equipment. Okay, <laughs> zombie, zombie apocalypse, do you grab the baseball bat or the machete? Um. I, I I gravitate towards the baseball bat because I just love a good bludgeoning tool, but a machete is way more useful in other things than just killing zombies. So <laughs> machete, that's the okay. practical answer. And <laughs> while you're writing, is it music in the background or total silence? Uh, it really depends. Majority of the time is total silence. Ah, so that kills my next question, which is, you know, do you have a whole bunch of playlists or not? So, uh, Well, when I do listen to music, it tends to be video game soundtracks um, because they're specifically designed not to draw you out of, you know, what you're focusing Ooh, on. Good oh, you know, it's interesting that is how they're written. <laughs> it's interesting because that's what my son listens to when he writes. He yeah. listens to video game soundtracks. So that's interesting. Yeah, no, they, they give you yeah. the mood, but if you notice the music, then they've failed their job. Right, right. Yeah. It's like it's like Foley for uh, 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 an audio drama. If if you say, "Ooh, great sound effect," you screwed up. Nobody's exactly. supposed to notice. That's, exactly. That's intriguing. I like that. Yep. Well, Jake, let me let me turn the uh, conversation towards uh, Reign of Four. Uh, yeah. uh, now there are those uh, uh, out in the Specfic fan community that consider you the king of mashups. Uh, and your most recent release, uh, uh, Reign of Four, is one of probably the most dramatic and I unlikely mashups you've ever pulled off. Uh, and, you know, for those that are not aware, this is medieval sci-fi. Yes. And, and that just kind of boggles my mind. So I'm wondering, can, can, you, I don't know, can you deconstruct the process of, of taking two such diverse genre aesthetics basically uh like medieval history and science fiction and walk us through how you weave them together into <laughs> anything that resembles a coherent storyline <laughs> and, and that's um, assuming that you have you know right I, I, exactly right, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're gonna assume yeah coherency and quality on that one <laughs> um but basically i mean i have always been fascinated with the you know kings and royalty uh, specifically definitely of england but definitely medieval europe too and um i've loved the the three edwards uh, edward the first second third and then the black prince of england just love that history and that time period um and i've always wanted to write the, those stories and it just t turned out permuted press was like, we're looking for space operas. <laughs> and somehow <laughs> my brain went, now you can write it. And I'm like, really, <laughs> really brain. <laughs> Cause, um, that's not space opera. <laughs> that's me medieval historical fiction. New, no, new, no, new, no. go for it. Well, and, and technically I, I operas just, are always medieval anyway. So yeah, if you think exactly. about it, that's perfect. And, and basically then, 
the next thing, you know, for reference, I went with, well, basically what George Martin did with Game of Thrones was take actual historical events and put it into a fantasy world. A lot of that, you know, that he's written was actually based on things that happened. And I'm like, well, I can do that in space opera, but I wanted it to be medieval. I wanted that civilization to still be primitive so that it could still have a lot of the drama and a lot of the problems that went with that society back then. Um, So I built it on the premise that there was a grand civilization, i.e. the Romans, but this, in this case, a far galactic grand civilization that had died out, but they left their tech. And uh, basically, you know, the civilization that came up out of it, of course, had to go through the Dark Ages, and they were able to basically get it back going but they have a very rudimentary understanding of how it all works. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's a wing and a prayer <laughs> that they aren't basically just voided out to space. So uh, basically you're, you're taking, you know, the existing, and I, I assume there's an a- adaptation that goes into it, but basically the, the tent poles of the lives of the Edwards and the black Prince yeah. and creating a conceit where we can put that into space, but still have the same fundamental dramas and the, the, the set pieces that require the events to unfold. Cause there was communication issues back then. There yep. was, there yep. was uh, technology issues, blah, blah, blah. And just yep. recreating that in a different setting. Yeah. Oh, com- completely. The control of the church. Um, I've got that in there also. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's all of those kinds of things, which is why I, I kind of mirrored history, um, you know, a grand civilization like the Roman Empire that did die away but left a lot of their infrastructure and a lot of their traditions and inventions and things. But, you know, by the time you get to the 1200s in England, so m- more has been forgotten than is remembered. Yeah. But they're still trucking along. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're still going. They're still able to start the Hundred Years' War, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's that's what I went with. Um, I was like, you know, if they could do it in medieval times, then I'm sure <laughs> these guys on space stations and far off galaxy can, you know, make it all work too. So, See, but are they still swinging a sword? Yes. Oh, awesome. Yes. Um, and you know, very limited. Um, there's no lasers. There's no flying around super thruster spaceships, TIE fighter things, X-wings, none of that. I mean, you know, their spaceships is, is literally, they are shuttles that go from point A to point B and back. <laughs> and, and that's it. They don't deviate much. <laughs> deviation leads to destruction and death. So we're just going to go in a straight line now. <laughs> and, and that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. That's fascinating. And and yeah. you know the, that opens up this whole new world for uh, uh, writers who have that historical inclination, not, not everyone does. And that's cool. But those that have, you know, if you studied the Medici's, you know, that they, they were right. always, my fascination was the Medici's, oh, yeah. uh, uh, and the Renaissance and so on and so forth. Then that his, those historical narratives that are so compelling because they're real can also become now fodder for fictional stories in any freaking genre you want. Yep. That's inspiring. Well, and, and really one of the biggest things from those from those eras, those those uh centuries is that whole notion, especially in the Renaissance period, that that 
constant driving for knowledge and striving to learn more and figure stuff out and make more sense of your world than you've made sense so far, you know? Yeah. It's and you that is basically the the foundation that almost every science fiction or fantasy book is based on anyway. I mean, what do readers who read that genre love to see in it? And that's cool stuff and new stuff and interesting new ways to try new things and, and mirror that back to what we're living through now here, you know, on planet Earth. Well, and that's also cool because you know, one of the powers of the mashup is you get to draw in readers from the diverse genres or formats that you're mashing together. So so this can bring in, you know, medieval history buffs who are curious how yep. how Jake is able to adapt, you know, an established historical narrative into a science fiction setting. And of course the sci-fi settings, uh, uh, you know, you got those fans going, "Ooh, this is going to be badass." Cuz yep. you know, it, it smacks of Dune at that point uh, uh, and and stories of that nature. Exactly. No, it totally does. And, you know, Dune was in the back of my head of, you know, how that kind of, you know, feudalism and everything was was created in a space setting. Um, But you're completely right about drawing in other readers, specifically my wife. Um, (laughs) (laughs) She's she's not a huge reader. She likes historical fiction. I'll say that. I mean, that's that's really what she loves. She loves all the Philippa Gregory books, um, all the things, you know, about the Tudor. She loves the Tudors and stuff like that. And um, she's read some of my stuff, but it's, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, she's not my audience. I mean, that's that's not she's, you know, my genres don't tend to be what she reads, but she loves the Reign of Four stuff because it feels like historical fiction to her. And now the truth comes out. This is why you wrote this book. So your, yeah, wife, so your wife could actually <laughs> read one of your stories and enjoy it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. The truth, the truth comes out. That's right. Right here on the roundtable, people. This is how this is how we do it. Very cool. We're running out of time here, but Suzanne, I wanted to check and see. Did you have another question for Jake? Um, I think my other question, and this is always an interesting piece, is have have you ever had one of those moments either at a reading or a book launch or, you know, a place where you're interacting with your audience, with your readership, with your fans? Have you ever had a moment that's just such an interesting story, be it totally mortifying or totally energizing, (laughs) that you've just always wanted to share? You know, the only thing I could say, honestly, uh, which is interesting, is... At the World Horror Con this last May in in Atlanta, a lot of, you know, the writers that were there had readings, you know, scheduled for us. And mine was late at night. I mean, I had a a YA novel I was reading from, but it was 10 o'clock at night. And so there's, you know, there's like maybe a handful of people in there. But the interesting thing is I hadn't read it in so long. I was standing there reading it out loud going, huh, I kind of like this story. This, this, is, <laughs> this isn't bad. But the other thing was, is I was starting to edit on the fly because Dude. I had written it so long ago <laughs> that I saw the mistakes in the cadence of the senses and how the structure. And I basically started almost rewriting it as I'm reading it out loud. <laughs> so then I started panicking because I'm like, well, if they buy this book – and actually read that part, it's not going to be the same as what they're hearing right now. <laughs> so I had to force myself, even if I felt that, that that sentence was a little clunky, and you know, now Jake would write it differently than then Jake, 
I just had to read it as it was on the page. And <laughs> it was it was a stressful moment for a bit there. I sure. almost froze up. <laughs> Writing on the fly, editing on the go. See, friends, there yeah. you go. If you're ever called upon to read your fiction in public, make sure you read it before at least once exactly. and perform any edits that you feel compelled to make That's before. Right. And, and put put aside the urge to pull out your red pen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Trouble there. That is Hold- a path you will not come back That's from. Right. Hold on just a second. I yeah. need to edit this paragraph. Hold on. This is this is not a live reading. This is yeah. a live edit. Here we go. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, friends, uh, the the clock has has died, come back to life, and climbed into some sort of armored mobile unit, uh, uh, and has turned its its pulse lasers and and particle cannons upon me. Uh, I can only assume that means we are way over time. Uh, uh, a common case here at the roundtable, and in this case, a very sad one, because this has been exceptional. Jake Bible, thank you so much for making the time and and sharing some insights with us here at the roundtable, man. We appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Definitely. <laughs> you betcha. So, Suzanne, there was yeah. there was some awesomeness tossed out there in the last mm, 20 half hour minutes ago. Uh, uh, what are you taking away from this? Did anything stick out and, and that you're going to grab and shove into your writer's toolbox? Well, the one thing that uh, Jake's that notion of uh, you get faster as you work longer and you work more and you work more. And I've experienced that myself. You know, recently I was doing uh, NaNoWriMo this mm-hmm. past November. And uh, there was one day I was way behind and I was doing some writing sprints. And each sprint, I would write for an hour and then look at how many words I wrote and then write for an hour and look at how many words I wrote. And I did this three or four times. And in every instance, I noticed that the first hour was always the least number of words and the third or fourth hour was always the most words. Words Interesting. In that hour. So I think it's true for a lot of us, for a lot of writers, that the more that you write, the the more your creative juices really start to flow and you, you hit that magic, what I call, you know, the capital F-L-O-W flow, where you know, you're just so creative, your your fingers cannot type fast enough to get everything out onto the page. <laughs> yes. Beast mode on. Bam. Yeah. Type type of type. So so don't be afraid to just keep on writing. That's awesome. That's, yeah, tuck that in the toolbox. Everybody tuck that in the toolbox. I agree. That affirmation that persistence will build fortitude uh, uh, is a strong one. And and, and both you and Jake uh, affirm that. And that's awesome. Uh, for me, it was it was the the notion of history as fictional narrative. And that that's not a new concept. I, mean, I think we all kind of on some level are aware that you can do that. But but hearing how Jake took the story of the Edwards and the Black Prince and has transposed it into a sci-fi setting, it, it's like it's like the seal is broken now, and now we can all kind of do that. And and I think that would be badass if if a lot of us did that. We can use historical narratives and take the drama that historians have teased out of that and translate that into a fictional environment. It's almost like your outline is kind of done for you. Uh, uh, and that it's not that simple. It's not a shortcut by any stretch of the imagination, but it is kind of exciting. So, so that really stuck out for me. So awesome. Very cool. Well, friends, here's the deal at the round table. You got some writerly goodness from that last 20 ish minutes or so. I know you did cause we did. Uh, uh, and, and it just keeps rolling from there. Now here's the deal. Come back in a week, 
And we'll have Suzanne back. We'll, of course, have Jake back in the big chair. And we'll add to the mix a courageous guest writer. And not just any courageous guest writer, because there is one truth here that that I have been withholding until this very end, for those of you that stuck out to the end here. Uh, you may have heard me discuss the Ander Libram project that Ed Greenwood is is launching, uh, has launched, and is, is currently rolling out. Now, obviously, I'm involved with this, but what you may not know is that Jake is involved with it, and so is Suzanne. Suzanne is involved writing novels. Both of them are writing novels in the Hellmaw series. And next week, when we bring our guest writer on... He's writing novels in the Anderlibram Project, too. This is going to be an under-spectacular episode. Uh, uh, but regardless of who all is here and where they're from, I can promise you it is going to be an epic brainstorm uh, uh, of titanic, one could say, kaiju proportions. Uh, so, and But the thing is, that's seven days from now. And I know you're used to waiting, but nobody likes to wait. I don't like to wait. Suzanne, help us out here. What can our listeners do between now and seven days from now to, to make that time just whiz by. Well, one thing they could do is they could go to SoundCloud and they could uh, go to the Onder Libram account and listen to the first three chapters of the first two books that have rolled out so far from Helma. Ooh, indeed. I think I might have to tuck some links in the liner notes for that one. That's excellent. That would definitely help make the time fly by. I think that's awesome. And I will tell you, friends, as I always do, that you find what you're looking for. So look for the wow. Look for the oh, hell yeah. And if you look for that in your life, I promise you, you will find it. We'll be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.